What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul Podcast. And I need you to sit back if you need to pause real quick, go grab a snack or a drink or something like that, because my guest today is Bonnie Kerrigan Snyder. And this is, I think, to date, we've done 70 episodes so far. To date, this is the longest one, all right? And yeah, as a as a parent, as someone who cares about our youth and stuff like that, like this is a very important conversation and this should be important to just about anybody out there. So Bonnie is the the author of a brand new book called Undoctrinate, right? And the book is officially out, but you'll you'll hear us saying like, oh, when it comes out, because uh, we recorded this a couple of weeks ago. But anyways, anyways, this is one of the more important books of this time. Um, so there has been a lot of conversations about, uh, you know, this kind of woke ideology slipping into schools. And as a parent, like, I'm always curious. I'm like, is this really that big of an issue? Uh, Bonnie and I talk about this a little bit. Like, is this just a moral panic? Are they really like teaching our kids that, you know, if you're white, you're bad and you're inherently racist and, you know, all these other things, right? Are they shutting down conversations, right? And this is something that I, I haven't personally seen from, you know, with my son and his, uh, his schools. I haven't heard any of my friends talking about it. So we do kind of talk about that, like how big of an issue is this? But nobody could deny that it is an issue. And this is kind of what I talk about regularly, whether it's on the podcast or in my own writing or anything like that. Like if you want to debate like the severity of an issue, cool, let's do that. But to completely neglect if the issue exists, that's just, you're not a serious person if, if you're neglecting it. So there have been plenty of stories um, about, you know, things going on in classrooms and it's starting, you know, very, very young at elementary schools, going into high school, and things like that. So Bonnie wrote a book about this. She has an extensive background in this and she actually works for uh, the fire organization. So uh, you'll hear us talk about this a little bit in the conversation, but many of you are familiar with the coddling of the American mind from Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt. Well, Greg is, you know, uh, the, the top dude over at the fire organization where they're looking at, you know, college campuses and things like that and seeing how free speech is being shut down and everything. But Bonnie wanted to see like, okay, well, before they get to college, what's going on before then? So in the book and in our conversation, we talk about, you know, how teachers are sometimes, you know, forgetting about the ethical guidelines. Uh, there are a lot of children who are starting to self-censor because they're worried about, you know, things that we're all worried about, which is the group kind of you know, casting you out of the group because you have different opinions and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, regardless of, you know, what we think is right or wrong or whatever, like I've talked about this many times, I've even had moral philosophers on here. Morality is this, you know, tricky subject. And there are some, there are certain things that we can all agree are like objectionably wrong when it comes to morality. But when it comes to education and we're shutting down ideas and conversations, like we're starting to go in a very bad direction. And that's one of the reasons why I think this book is so important and why I was able to talk to Bonnie so long about it. All right. But anyways, like I said, grab a snack, buckle up, uh, <laughs> or you could be like me. I listen to everything at two X speed, but yeah, this is one of the longer episodes. So yeah. Uh, make sure you check down in the description below, uh, Bonnie 
is on Twitter. She told me that she will be becoming more active. So make sure you're following her over on Twitter. But more importantly, grab a copy of this book. Tell your friends, uh, friends who are parents, teachers really need to read this. Anybody working in school districts should really, really read this book as well. So Bonnie's book is available now. It is linked down in the description. So make sure you check it out. And down in the description, make sure you are following me over on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul. Uh, I love chatting with all of you. But I also upload a ton of episodes. I'm working on quite a few projects. So you want to make sure you don't miss any of that. All right. But yeah, if you're new, make sure you're following the podcast so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. But let's let's go ahead and jump into this, this conversation. I really enjoy talking with Bonnie. She she's a very, you know, passionate person about this. So I hope you enjoy it. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Bonnie Kerrigan Snyder about her brand new book, Undoctrinate. Right. Hello, Bonnie. Thank you so much for joining me. How are you doing today? I, I'm great. It's uh, Labor Day and I'm enjoying uh, my extra day off this week. How about you? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Same. My son, my son's actually in the other room. He's already up early playing video games on his day off. How old? Uh, he is uh, 12 and a half. He, he'll be 13 on New Year's Eve. Okay. Well, yeah, that's yeah. video gaming uh, time of life. Yeah, and I'm already seeing the the teenagerness come Uh-oh. out of him. But oh. uh, but yeah, and and that's perfect for your book that we're going to be talking about today too. Because as a parent, the topic of your book is something I'm very interested in. So uh, yeah, right now we're recording before the launch of your amazing book. Uh, Greg Lukianoff was kind enough to introduce us. I was able to check out an early copy. So for those who have yet to meet you, uh, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what inspired this book, Undoctrinate? Yeah, I am the director of high school outreach at the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, where Greg Lukianoff is the president. He is also the author of Coddling of the American Mind, for those who might be familiar with that. And I have been at FIRE for five years. Before that, I was a college professor. And before that, I've been a high school guidance counselor and English teacher. So I've Mm. hit education, I guess, at at most of the levels. Uh, I'm also certified in elementary. I've never taught elementary, though. And I was inspired to write this book. I mean, I've been following the the, the title of the book uh, is Undoctrinate, How Politicized Classrooms Harm Kids and Ruin Our Schools and What We Can Do About It. So Mm -hmm. the purpose um, of this book was to explore a problem that I had personally experienced in my role at FIRE. I was hearing from parents all over the country of different varying political backgrounds and persuasions. I think that this problem has reached a point where it really cuts across many categories. Uh, It concerns, you know, people of different ethnic backgrounds, racial Mm. backgrounds, and also political persuasions. And I was hired at FIRE specifically to help to address the problems that were cropping up on college campuses. And the feeling was that there was no way they would be able to get ahead of this problem unless we started attacking it at younger ages. Mm Because showing up with sort of these crystallized ideas. And so Greg, 
has really um, been, he's a learner by training, but he's been looking at it from psych- psychological uh, angles. And that's mm. really what I was teaching as well. When I was in the college, I was teaching developmental psychology. Mm. And I have, we could talk about some of the experiences, you know, that I've personally had, but I'm also listening to people and recognizing similarities in, in my own experiences uh, across the country and what they're dealing with. And I noticed that the there were a lot of key developmental theories that were being violated in some of the mm. things that were happening in classrooms. So I tackled that in, in some pretty great detail in the book. And also, uh, I think the genesis really came out of my recognition that there were a lot of longstanding ethical principles of good teaching that are being violated, just yeah. completely ignored. And I I still am not 100% sure if stu- I, I, my inclination, my my hunch is that teachers in training aren't even being taught the ethical guidelines anymore. <laughs> I, I can't prove that. Uh, and certainly some of the older ones are aware of these guidelines and are just tossing them to the side because there seems to be this, uh, the ends justify the means attitude towards enacting a preferred worldview in the classroom. So um, that's, that's an introduction to, I guess, how we came to this conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I love it too. I, I'm this, I'm the type of person, like no matter what, uh, challenge or issue or discussing, I'm always like trying to figure out, okay, like what's below that? Like what's the root? And, and yeah, uh, I was introduced to Greg and, uh, Jonathan Heights work through the coddling of the American mind and seeing like college campuses. And it, and I actually got into this conversation and learning about it because in 2019, I was uh, uh, canceled, if you will, by oh. the YouTube community, right? And oh, I didn't, it, do tell. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, long story short, I had a mental health channel, addiction recovery. I got sober in 2012. I'm very passionate about helping people, right? And like, you know, you, you've worked in education and my, I come from a family of teachers. I think so. I just like to educate people too, yeah, to my sure. blood. But then I started noticing these things of, um, you know, just, the outrage and, you know, it was no longer like disagreements or anything because in the mental health field, for example, there's mm-hmm. so much subjectivity, right? Like even uh, the diagnostic statistical manual, there's like arguments within the community, right. but the, the, uh, you would notice that conversations wouldn't happen. There would just be outrage. Right. And then you start getting into all these moral conversations and stuff like that. I actually had a moral philosopher, uh, Kurt Gray on here a few weeks ago to talk about like kind of like the, the, the moral philosophy and psychology around this outrage and instead of having conversations, you know what I mean? But, yeah, um, I feel what you mean? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and yeah, it was an experience that nothing could prepare you for. I thought, I'm, you know, I was always the type of person where I'm like, I don't care what people think. Right. But when you have hundreds of thousands of strangers coming at you, it's a whole different ball game. And one of the things that I want to talk about too, is you talk about, how kids are starting to learn to self-censor and, and I, I'm a 36 year old man. Right. And it's taking me, it's taken me about two years, like to now to talking with people like you and Greg and others to finally stop self-censoring myself so much. Like, so I can only imagine if that happens to a child in a classroom and they can't feel like they can express their views and have conversations like, people are wrong. That's part of learning too, right? Like part of the the education process. Yeah. yeah. I, I like to say that the first step to being right is being wrong, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it, it seems and like speaking out loud, like that's, that's how we 
we we articulate our mm. thoughts and sometimes the first version of them isn't obviously all the way thought through and and one of the ways that we get corrected is by verbalizing something and then having somebody in a safe environment which i know or a safe space is a sort yeah. of a, a loaded term at this point but you know you want to have somebody who can correct you and what we have now are these viewpoints that are being asserted with such heavy-handed authoritarianism mm -hmm. that um dissent is being squelched and this is not the way to refine an argument or to discover the flaws in your own thinking yeah uh, and, you know what you're talking about the cancellation is I, I go through several different ways in which indoctrination is harmful, like philosophical, pedagogical, <clears throat> emotional, ethical, democratic, legal, mm -hmm. uh, developmental. And the, the one that I didn't go into because I didn't really feel qualified, but I'm exploring it at the moment is sort of the spiritual side of it. And, um, you know, there's no room for redemption or for forgiveness. Mm -hmm. It's just we're done with you. And it's like, but we're all... And, and I do think we have competing worldviews, yeah. uh, which I'm happy to interrogate and to examine, but it seems like some are not. It's our worldview and yours must be annihilated. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, my worldview includes the, you know, just the basic assumption that we're all basically flawed and mm -hmm. that we, we need, you know, room for forgiveness or room to correct ourselves. And the other one is sort of like you are, must be perfected and that. People are perfected, perfectible, um, yeah. which is really profoundly different. So you do get into these really deep uh, philosophical, sometimes religious discussions, um, which uh, underlie, I think, the the competing worldviews. Yeah, um, it's it's interesting that you bring that up about you know like uh, just like no room for like redemption. Uh, so uh, I actually um, I've self published a few books, but one of them was called canceled and it was about my experience and sure. i've read a lot of books about this kind of things and read a lot of articles and you know there's so many different people have so many definitions and criteria but one of the things i noticed was it seems like there's no room for like forgiveness growth or or anything yeah. like that and that and i think i come from a different place as a recovering drug addict right because i used to be just you know a piece of garbage like objectively terrible son, terrible father, terrible everything, right? Like nine years ago. So I've seen my own change and I've worked in addiction treatment. I've seen people come in at rock bottom and grow, right? And then when I look at this kind of, uh, this, this outrage culture, it, 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 like, first off, half the arguments are just completely just people coming from different uh, uh, arguments or ideas of like morality, right? Where it's like, okay, well, let's talk and have a discussion, see where you're coming from. Half yeah. of them are about that. But then the other half is just, I don't think you can grow. And and the one that sticks out to me the most, because it's most recent, was the guy from Jeopardy. I don't know much about him. But, yeah. yeah, but he, they removed him. And I was like, okay, what happened? And when was it? Eight years ago, he said something on a podcast. Eight right. years ago, right? Well, and I know I don't say anything on this podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm just like, eight years from now. <laughs> yeah I, I yeah i just i i don't i don't get that because we we all can look back like you know we can look back five years ago from ourselves and say i've changed my my worldview has changed you know so it's it's really well, weird and what and what you're describing is this um one of the things that i i hit pretty hard in the book and that i believe in very strongly that i was taught as a counselor and you're supposed to practice as an educator is 
this idea of unconditional acceptance. You know, that when somebody comes to you, and certainly a child is an unfinished product. That's the whole <laughs> point. They're children. And to, you know, to condemn a child and to, to you know, imply that a child is incapable of growth. And, right. you know, just, just this week, there was a teacher in, um, I believe it's California who was the Antifa teacher who was oh, caught. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, you know, he looks like he's in line to be fired. And he basically, you know, was calling a kid in his class a fascist, which is quite, you know, a, 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 a little harsh a, a final pronouncement to make <laughs> on, a, on a child who hasn't even reached the age of majority yet. Yeah. But like Carl Rogers posited that in any helping helping profession there there are preconditions that you need to be able to have any therapeutic benefit and the first one is unconditional acceptance so you know if somebody comes to you as a drug addict and you're like wow you're an objectively terrible person you know mm -hmm. nobody improves in the face of negative judgment that's just something we understand in the therapeutic community it's more like okay this is you now where what you know and that's okay because mm -hmm. this is that where you find yourself. And yeah. in this place, I'm here to just accept you the way that you are. Because, you know, uh, Rogers would say, just like a plant needs soil, water, and light, a human being needs acceptance, genuineness, and empathy. I think are the three things, uh, Carl Rogers' three conditions in order to flourish, in order to self-actualize. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of teachers are not providing that. It's like, you're okay with me if you say the things I accept, expect you to say. It's conditional. It's not unconditional. And, you know, children want nothing more than acceptance and they want to mm -hmm. have the approval of the authority figures in their lives. And um, so kids, what happens then is you end up playing a role. You end up becoming inauthentic. You end up yep. presenting a false self in the classroom. So I, I, you know, I looked into the literature on self-censorship and self-silencing. And of course, none of it's good. This is the stuff <laughs> yeah. that sends people into therapy years later because they're like, I've never been able to even figure out who I am. So yeah. very, it's, there's a lot of odd contradictions. You know, the same people who are telling us to believe any identity statements that a child makes are at the same time expecting these children to fit themselves very rigidly into a worldview that is you know, being promoted by the authority figures in their life. Um, and one of the things that I find really ironically fascinating is so much of these ideologies, <clears throat> excuse me, deal with power and oppression dynamics. You know, a lot of it's sort mm. of <laughs> Marxist worldviews where they're talking about these intersectional matrices where white males presumably have are at the top and Christian and at the bottom you have you know, women of color and all of these other, you know, supposedly oppressed identities. But what is it very uh, noticeably missing is what about the power of an adult over a child? And what yeah. about the power that a teacher has over a student? And here you have not only are they teaching kids about power and oppression dynamics, but they're also demonstrating it. Wait, and I, wait. Bonnie, did you did you talk about that in the book? Because that that's a great point, and I'm trying to remember. Is that uh, in the book, like about the irony of that power dynamic? 
I, I hope that it is, to be honest. I, I you know, <laughs> so when you write a book, a lot gets edited out of yeah. it. But I think I do make that point in the book. And if not, I'll just reiterate, I'll just iterate it for the first time here yeah. and there. Yeah. Um, if, yeah. If not, it could be for the second edition or expanded edition. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I, I find that a supreme irony because yeah. uh, it's, it's a real object lesson. And I, another point I like to make is that I, I think that I know that a lot of these people think that they're doing a good thing. And, and mm-hmm. I think in the name of doing what they think is a good thing, they're doing some bad things. And, yeah, uh, you know, because the end justifies the means, as as I said. And um, so, yeah, just the, the, the lack of self-awareness and the um, just this what what I you know, this messianic zeal with which some of these ideologies are being promoted is mm-hmm. is a cause for for great, great uh, concern. Um, yeah. One of the things I wanted to say when you talked about your own cancellation, one of the things I love about working at FIRE is I, I, I sort of consider us to be the the friends of the friendless, you know, when people find themselves canceled and um, they find themselves being shunned or, you know, sort of the uh, on the on the attack of the woke mob or whatever it is, the, the online mobs, um, you know, you're. You're, you can't cancel a human being. You, you're still a person. You're still a member of the human race. And, uh, and you know, even death doesn't cancel a human being. And, uh, you know, nobody gets ejected from the human race. We're all, mm-hmm. you know, we're all just in, in states of incomplete uh, imperfection. And so yeah. join the club, you know, <laughs> join the club. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's, it's crazy too. Like when I think about like, you know, the, the growth and the, un, uh, the growth and the unconditional acceptance and stuff like that, like, so many like i a lot of it goes back to you know uh i've I've recognized this through a lot of conversations because i see it through the lens of my own sobriety and working with addicts and stuff people who are at this low and like i've i've just witnessed so much change throughout my life right but like imagine somebody walking into a, a treatment center and they've done terrible things they've lied they've cheated they've stolen you know we do some messed up stuff to our family and our addiction but imagine someone wanting to change wanting to get help and you saying no, this is who you are. You're never going to change. You're done. Right? Like the, 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 the immediate thought is, okay, well, screw it. Why am I going to do that? Like that, that's what I, uh, I've read both of Robin D'Angelo's books. And the second time I took a more like a different view of it. And was like, I was trying to understand because I'm, I'm new to these discussions. I'm like, why do people are, why are they so upset with her? Right. And I read her book. I'm like, oh my God, you're giving no, you're giving people no path to redemption. Right. So if you go up to somebody and say, or you're teaching children, right? Like if I teach a kid, like, hey, you're white, you're a male, uh, you are racist. And guess what? No matter what you do, you'll always be racist. Like what's going to make that kid want to try not to be if you're putting them in a uh, a learned helplessness scenario? Like, hey, no matter what you do, yeah. you're you're going to be, you know, well, uh, screwed and, up. And the other end of that coin is, okay, you are, uh, you know, a um, person of color and you are facing systemic oppression that has always been part of this country and it's interwoven into all of its institutions. I can't think of anything more dispiriting, discouraging and disempowering than that messaging. And Mm -hmm. that's what we're hearing from a lot of minority parents is, please don't teach this to my child. I don't agree with this. This isn't how I view the world. And and I don't want my children to be taught to think this way because, you know, really the realm of this is getting into values, personal values and family values. And sometimes it crosses over into religious uh, values as well. Mm -hmm. And really schools are supposed to take a hands-off approach to that. Uh, And you know, defer to parental authority. And you're also, as an educator, supposed to act in loco parentis, in the place of the parents. But what Mm. we're seeing, unfortunately, is a lot of deception, 
uh, which is a, which is something that I encountered as well. Uh, you know, I think that there is some dim understanding that they're violating the norms of education. Some of these activist educators, and so they are not being transparent. They are concealing their aims and their methods from uh, the parents, which is why we're seeing these videos popping up that students are taking. You know, who who. I mean, imagine, I, I certainly didn't experience this. I, I tend to think I was among the last people to go all the way through. I didn't make it through graduate school before it got weird, but I did make it through college before things got weird in the late 80s. And um, I can't imagine having being in K-12 and having to report on my teacher for unprofessional behavior. That's really expecting a level of maturity that I don't think I had at that age, uh, but some of these kids do because it's getting so bad that yeah. And of course they're armed with cell phones. So. I, I'm going to tell you a funny story that I, I'm, uh, I'm not embarrassed of, but I've never said it publicly, but I think there was a valuable learning lesson that I also teach my son. So everybody listening, enjoy this conversation of six-year-old Chris. So when I was <laughs> in, when I was in, uh, you know, first grade, I had to go to the bathroom and I had this teacher and she was just Satan, right? She was terrible. I had to go to the bathroom. She wouldn't let me, right? So I ended up wetting myself in class. So embarrassing, right? right. My dad, furious, because my dad raised me because my mom was an alcoholic, you know, whatever. Raised, uh, he went down there, uh, you know, and talked with the principal and all these other things, blah, blah, blah. Not long after, she ended up getting fired, right? But anyways, at six years old, I learned a very valuable lesson, which is the point of this, is that People are people. So for example, teachers are people too, right? Like you were just talking about like reporting a teacher and all these other things and teachers are people, you know, cops are people, judges are people, you know, we all have these things. And I think as a kid, we automatically think that, you know, teachers are always right. Parents are always right. You know, authority figures are always right. And something I've, I've done, uh, you know, with my son is I teach him to be you know, skeptical and questioning while also being respectful, right? right? I think that's the key, right? I don't want him to be that little jerk in class. It's just like, like, you know, being like contrarian to the teacher. I don't want that, you know, that won't be very helpful to him. But I, I've told him, here's what I've done. And we'll talk a little bit more about some of the parenting uh, strategies that you've discussed in the book. But what I personally do is I tell him, I say, hey, Dylan, if something sounds a little off, like, right. Just know that you could always ask me and your mom about this, right? Ask us what we think. Like if anything ever comes out of their mouth and you're just like, hey, I don't know if that's right. And, and it could be, you know, even topics about science and, you know, whatever, because, you know, I'm really into like skepticism in the scientific community yeah. and all that kind of stuff. So that's, that's kind of what I, I do. But uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Do you think there's uh, a solution for letting kids know that, you know, it's okay to kind of question some of the things they're they're being taught especially if it conflicts with things that they're learning at home or well i think that is a really disillusioning moment in a child's life when you realize that the adults in your life aren't perfect and um you know or you catch them making mistakes and you sort of it betrays your trust in the universe i think to a certain degree because you're sort of looking at them as these mighty figures um I mean, I, I think that the rule of thumb is to assume good faith in other people until proven otherwise. And so, you know, yeah. you, get, you get one and uh, and then even if somebody sort of betrays your trust, if they take make amends, if they 
own up to it, you know, you can presume good faith again. So when when we talk about how to address perceived problems, uh, my advice in the book is to, you know, work up the chain of command. So if you have a problem with a teacher, don't go to the superintendent, uh, you know, go to <laughs> Yeah. Go to the teacher and may and you know ask what's going on and just understand that teaching is a you know an impromptu um oh, what do they call it you know sort of a um it, you know it's it's like improv improvisational acting a lot of the time and that they're mm -hmm. under pressure and it's a live performance and every teacher is going to fall short of your highest expectation pretty much every day. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, but, you know, and you really don't even have to worry that much of the teachers, you know, drops some, you know, opinionated topic once, you know, if it's just a one-off, you're really looking for patterns of behavior. That's where yeah. uh, the, the situation really becomes problematic. So... Here's, here's something that I just thought about. And by the way, one of my favorite stories from the book that really got me thinking was the one about your daughter's own experience where they were talking about like capitalism versus, you know, yeah. other things, right? So I, I want to discuss that in a second, but I was just thinking, right? Like you're talking about like, you know, a lot of the teaching, like I have a lot of friends here in Vegas who are teachers. Some of them are very like left-leaning, progressive and stuff. One of them's actually a debate teacher and I've seen her work and it seems like she's like pretty balanced stuff, but debate teaches you to, take the opposite side and try to, Good. you know, uh, but, um, anyways, I'm curious if you think like, say for example, like, uh, like your daughter's story that was in, I believe, uh, college, right? No, in high school. That was high, high school. school. Okay. Yeah. So do you think any teachers have been pressured by students who are already indoctrinated? Like when you look at the coddling of the American mind, that's students trying to cancel teachers, right? Or silence teachers for teaching certain views. So do you think, do you think it's possible? Or I don't know if you've even had this come up where a teacher has felt like they have to like, oh, geez, I don't want to, I don't want 50 million students coming after me or I don't want to go viral. So I'm just going to conform to their, you know, quote unquote, woke beliefs just to get the pressure off. Like, do you think, do you think there's a little nuance and do you think that's, that's a possibility ever? I have not heard of that. That's a new idea that I'll I'll like stay try to stay alert to. I do think it's more likely <clears throat> and what I'm what I'm observing is that I don't think teachers in their ed school programs are being well educated anymore. And so I think that it's more likely that the teacher really doesn't realize that there is an opposing position to take because there is such a monoculture now at the graduate school level mm. in the teacher training programs. Mm. Uh, the incident in the book you're talking about with my daughter. She yes. mostly, both of my girls mostly went to public school, but my, uh, one of my kids was in private school for a couple of years and it was just an ongoing, it, it was fine until there was a, and I hear this a lot. There was a change of, um, upper school administration and they just brought in this fervent, you know, messianic attitude that we are here to not just educate these kids, but we are here to change the world in a very specific <laughs> way that we, you know, and there's this idea that we know the right way to think. For instance, just last weekend, there was a, a march called Teach the Truth Campaign, um, which is by the Zen Education Project. And, you know, they're saying, well, we, you know, which is saying we know what the truth is. And the truth that they're talking about would be the kind of CRT, anti-CRT laws that are being uh, that are being enacted across the United States. And they're, mm -hmm. they're saying, well, that's, you know, we're concerned about that at fire too, because we're not for censorship. We yeah. Are, 
you know, but that being said, not everything can be taught all the time. And that's, that's a, a different topic. But what happened in my daughter's school was that, um, she was given the communist manifesto to read and, mm-hmm. you know, I saw it and I thought, oh, okay, well, yeah, that's an important book to read. And, uh, so, but then she was asked to go into school and have a classroom debate. It was a small, what they called a Harkness table. And they were supposed to debate the relative merits of capitalism versus communism. Mm-hmm. And all of the kids in the class concluded very quickly, mind you, that communism was a better system than capitalism. And there really is no debate about capitalism. And my daughter came home and said, you know, mom, I try. Oh, and then they all voted and they all they all said that my daughter was wrong. And why was she wrong? Because capitalism is evil. And, you know, I just so interesting that it's such an exaggerated conclusion, mm-hmm. which is sort of religious. You know, it's evil. Um, mm-hmm. And my daughter said, you know, I tried to speak up for capitalism because I thought that that's what we were supposed to do, have a debate. Uh, and then she said, but they never gave me any books to read about capitalism. So I mm. had nothing to say. And all I could say is like, well, I think capitalism is OK because that's where the food gets into the supermarket. And I like, you know, having a lot of variety. You know, she just had to make something up. And so. I went in there and, you know, had to say, well, what, what's going on here? You know, that's not a, a reasonable or useful learning exercise. Mm-hmm. You, and, and then they denied it ever happened, you know, which gets yeah. into this whole realm of deception. And I, there were other incidents of um, lying, which made me pull her from the school because, I, you know, I thought there's on one level, you're just a bad teacher, but if you're lying <laughs> and you're just a bad person and yeah. I, you know, you're, you know, cause teachers are supposed to be role models in the classroom mm-hmm. and in the community, uh, believe it or not. I know that's kind of old fashioned, but yeah, you know, my daughter had a, a teacher who was caught in a sting, uh, you know, operation, Uh-oh. you know, soliciting or, or being solicited. I don't know which one it is, but in any case, you know, that's the kind of, if you get caught in a position like that, you really do lose credibility in the classroom. Yeah. Uh, you no longer, uh, you know, have the kind of moral authority that is yeah. to guide the youth. Yeah. yeah. And, and here's, let me, Bonnie, let me tell you why I found that particular story so interesting and it stuck out to me. So for the last like year or so, I've been, I've been trying to figure out and just really uh, I don't, I don't know, like wrestle with the ideas of like capitalism versus other systems and stuff like that. Right. Sure. Like for example, I think a great example is, uh, you know, my entire life I've been very entrepreneurial, right? Like when I was in high school, CD burners first came out, I started, you know, burning them, selling them for a profit and all this other stuff. Sure. And I've been like that, you know, my whole life. And, you know, a more recent example, a more recent example, last week, uh, my company, uh, the, the COVID pandemic finally caught up with them. Uh, I, I was laid off because they were doing downsizing, you know, whatever, right? But because of, you know, this podcast, because of my YouTube channel, because of my writing, I have these other sources of income. I can do that. I have this kind of control over, you know, if I work harder, I can make more money. So I'm like, okay, capitalism is cool, right? But then at the same time, I see all the issues that come along with it. I see, you know, just other stuff, right? Like wealth inequality and I read books and, you know, uh, but anyway, so I could see both sides of it, but it's a conversation where I'm always trying to get both sides. I'm like, there's something I'm missing. I want to learn about both. So when I heard the story about your daughter, I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> right? Right, because, right. Like, I, I'm, I'm curious, in your opinion, like if, if, you, if you had the, the ideal teacher Right. How would they have handled that situation 
from start to finish, or even from the point of like, oh crap, I only gave them one point of view to really research on this. Like, how do they Maybe. foster a discussion, a debate, or you know, whatever? Or or if every or if it is twenty against one, right in that classroom, what does the teacher do? Well, a good teacher would never let the odds tilt that far against one student in the classroom. You would we you would strengthen the weak side. You would start to speak. You know, you would begin to play the devil's advocate, and you would shore up the mm. weak position. So that there actually is a rigorous back and forth going on between the two competing positions. But this was a rigged game leading to a preordained <laughs> conclusion, uh, which so much of this is. So much of it is working backwards from conclusions mm. and then trying to retrofit the evidence to uh, to match it. And, you know, the whole idea of Marxism, I, I do in my book have at the end suggestions. And one of them is a parental transparency protocol. And there's a lot of questions I would recommend you ask teachers at a school. But the best one or my favorite one is to just simply ask, is it Marxist? And then if it is, which it probably is, uh, most of this new, this novel programming, um, then just say, okay, well, fine. What do you have to, you know, what sort of counter messages do you have to that to provide a balanced view of both sides of that issue? Because I'm really, I'm not opposed to learning about Marxism. I am opposed to only learning about Marxism in, a, in an American school and there's this idea that because you're American, you automatically, by osmosis, understand the arguments in favor of capitalism. But I think we understand it less well than people in other countries do. So, for instance, we have immigrants who come to this country who have experienced the antithesis. Yeah. And they take to it in ways that, you know, they outperform native-born Americans in terms of the capitalist system because all of their creative juices have been pent up and are suddenly... Uh, released. But I like to point out too, when it comes to, um, well, two things. I, I do have a website called undoctrinate.org and I put up an article there called How to Raise an American. And in mm. that article, um, I go over, you know, the political system of our country, the legal system of our country, the economic system, what kind of culture we have, the, our method of advancement, um, how do we communicate with uh, uh, one another and all of the things that are are sort of the other side of what they're teaching in school, not to say that these views are right, but that they deserve a fair hearing as well. And, you know, when I think of Marxism, I think of free markets and we have a couple of free markets in this country. We have the free markets of consumer goods, of economics, but there's also the free marketplace of ideas. Yeah. And Marxism really threatens both of those. And that's why in school you're seeing kids being afraid to dissent and only hearing one side because Marxism, what it does is restrict free markets. And so they don't believe in a free, you know, the true believers do not believe in a free marketplace of ideas. They believe in only promoting the ideas that they have concluded are right and imposing them onto this really vulnerable population, which is children who are compelled mm -hmm. by law to sit in front of, of these people. Yeah. Um, so, well, you know, we believe I believe in free markets and I think that there is an excellent case to be made. And I am not afraid of making of having the Marxist versus capitalist argument because I'm very confident in the positions that I believe in. And I'm not uh, the least bit concerned. I mean, all you have to do is look at North you know, Korea versus South Korea and you've got an experiment in one system versus another system. Which one would you choose? You know, look at 
borders. And, you know, when you close them down, you know, when you build a wall, which way do people run? Uh, I mean, there are a lot of good arguments to be made. And I could also I also love to point out this is uh, another communist manifesto story. And I've actually got a copy of it, uh, believe it or not, right here. (laughs) Um, So I'm not afraid of the communist manifesto, but I do think it's ridiculous. When I went to Harvard as an undergraduate, this was in the book, and I know this got cut for space, but um, there was one book that I was assigned more than once at Harvard. In fact, I was assigned six separate times, and it was the communist manifesto. And, you know, the first time it was assigned to me, I and, and I was an English major. Mm, yeah. <laughs> not like I was majoring in. Yeah, um, that's interesting. Mark, yeah, isn't that interesting? And the first time <laughs> it was assigned to me, I thought, oh, you know, this was the 80s and the, com- you know, the Soviet Union was, you know, it was kind of the the peak or I guess near the end of the Cold War, but we didn't know it then. And, um, you know, so the first time I read it, I felt very scholarly and I, I was, you know, thinking that I was really uh, becoming extremely well-educated. The second time it was assigned to me, I thought, really? And at least I don't have to buy it again because I already own it because, you know, coming up with money for books was <laughs> hard. And uh, the third time I was assigned it, I thought, you've got to be kidding me. And then the fourth, fifth, and sixth times, I was like, this is a joke. And who is overseeing my education? Because why is this book showing up on every reading list that I have? Um, mm-hmm. and, you know, in graduate school, that I had a similar experience. The book there was um, Pedagogy of the Oppressed with Paulo Freire. And that was assigned to me pretty much in every graduate level education class that I ever took. So, mm-hmm. um but I, I guess the the coda to that those stories is that I don't think this has the effect that they often intend. I think it's comes across as annoying. <laughs> you know, it's heavy handed. It's um, so yeah. I, I like to re- refer to what Maya Angelou had to say. You know, my, I do take heart when people complain about what their kids are going through. I'm like, well, don't assume that they're learning what the teacher is actually teaching. Because oftentimes we take away a very different lesson. We don't remember what they said, but we remember how they made us feel. And, mm. um, you know, or how they treated us. And, you know, a teacher who doesn't let you express yourself in the classroom, who doesn't let you uh, think things through and who tries to he was very authoritarian and uh i don't think you come away thinking wow that's what i enjoy and i'd like more of that and i'd like our whole culture to be as unfriendly you know and as restrictive as that classroom was i don't Mm -hmm. don't think kids walk away many of them with that feeling yeah um quick question have you read the new book woke ink from vivek uh ramaswamy by chance no i have not so, uh, yeah, you might enjoy it, but, uh, yeah, it, it was interesting. Like I was thinking about when you were talking about, you know, like, uh, people who come from other countries, right. And they're very pro capitalism. Well, you know, he was the CEO of a biotech company and he left because of the, you know, the woke stuff, you know, and all that. Um, but anyways, uh, you know, hearing his story, like, and, and I think that's, you know, that's one of the reasons I love to read so much is because when you, when you understand where someone's coming from, like he, he came from, I believe, India, right? And when he was younger, they still had like a caste system or whatever. So, you know, capitalism, he's like, oh, cool. Like there's mobility and stuff. So when I see that, I'm like, okay, I get it. I get why you're like, you know, why, why you're really into that, where I could see somebody else with a different upbringing. And I think, you know, we often lose that and don't realize where people are coming from and, you know, why they believe what they believe, whether it's their, their background, their, their household or, you know, whatever. But anyways, in, in his book and even Robert Wright, like, I think, uh, just in my opinion, like if you look at Robert Wright, like on, uh, 
you know, like just on Twitter and his views and stuff like that. He's, he seems very anti-capitalism, but I've read like, I don't know, most of his books and he's very pro-capitalism, but he thinks how we fit, we could fix it. Right. They're, yeah, he's okay. like, Hey, he's like, Hey, there's some issues, but sure. we can fix it. That's, that's kind of what I see. And, you know, I'm trying to understand the whole, the whole spectrum of it. But like, here's my question for you. So you got the common communist manifesto. And then, you know, if, uh, it's, I, I wouldn't even know, like, is there, is there an equivalent for the capitalist idea? Like in book, <laughs> book well, it, it, that's see, and because we don't learn it, uh, I did, <laughs> it, again, if you go to my website, I did list a few, I would say that probably the wealth of nations by Adam Smith, uh, if I yeah. such a long book, you would have, to, uh, <laughs> yeah, you'd have it. Right. And so it's, a, it's, because that's probably one of the reasons they assign it is because it's such a short, quick, easy read. Yeah. And it would have to be a very short little excerpt from it. And then I think there's also like Max Weber and, um, you know, it, it sort of gets into the realm. You were talking about caste systems and the idea of meritocracy. And granted, meritocracy in our country probably has never operated perfectly. But I see it, the reinstitution, uh, attempted reinstitution of sort of a caste system with this intersectional mm. hierarchies. And it's just... You know, they're saying that some people have been born on top, but the idea of a meritocracy is meant to fix that. Mm -hmm. And we, we do have two competing systems. You know, we do have, uh, you know, sort of, you know, we have political dynasties in this country, which is a bit of a problem. You mm -hmm. know, people who were born thinking, well, my dad was a congressman. So that's what. Yeah. So uh, but the idea that we that there is a way to perfect something i think that this the pursuit of perfection also often oh, becomes yeah. the most imperfect thing of all yeah yeah absolutely yeah they what, what's that saying like you know they're like perfection is like the enemy of the good or something like that right Don't let like, the perfect be the enemy of yeah, the good. yeah yeah, yeah. I yeah. Think that it, you know obviously we should always strive to improve but i think that um not to get too biblical but you know i think the whole point of the first book of the bible is that this ain't paradise, people. You know, it's uh, and and it, you're not it, you're not going to find utopia here. Yeah. You know, which literally means nowhere. It's not on this planet. Yeah. So so there's so much I I could just ask about. You know, this like capitalism versus like communism, or bringing you know Marxism and socialism and all these other things, right? But so I guess you know there's two parts to this question. Like one, okay, say I want to teach, uh, because you know I think elementary, like K through, you know eighth grade is like too young. Well, let's say in high school, I want to, you know, have these kids that are about to go out in the real world, be adults, they're going to start voting and stuff. Right. And I want to teach them a diverse bunch of like different views. So a, what, what class would be ideal? Like, is that a history class? Do they specifically have to be in a debate class to learn about it? And how would you like set up a, a, a curriculum around that? Would you have kids read both books and then write the pros and cons of each, because I guess what I'm getting at, and I think this is the point of your book. And I, I think this is like how I parent, I don't want to teach my son what to think. I want to teach him how to think, yep. right? Like, I think that's like, you know, that's the core of a lot of these discussions. Like, okay, how to think like, for example, I think all the issues with like, uh, uh, <laughs> QAnon and conspiracy theories and all the COVID masking, it's like, okay, we need to teach people how to think. We need to teach them when to be skeptical, when to trust science. And that. But anyways, anyways, going back to just this specific thing, what would be the ideal class to teach this in? And uh, how, how would you have the kids look at the different views and how to think about it to come to their own conclusion that isn't being impressed upon them by the faculty, the teacher, you know, whatever? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I would say it's actually pretty easy. I would say that you stick to the existing ethical guidelines that govern the, the pedagogical practice of the teaching professions. There are numerous ones. Some of them might surprise you, like the NEA has really well-written ethical guidelines. And uh, yeah, you do not restrict access to competing views in the classroom. And you are supposed to give a fair accounting of the range of opinions. That doesn't mean that you would include, you know, conspiracy, QAnon types of theories. But, you know, yeah. you want to give, uh, you know, the, the, we do, you know, we have a curriculum at FIRE that we've put together. So we mm. have some suggested materials. And, um, you know, it, one of the things I included in there is what I call the ideological Turing test. The Turing test is like, when oh. is AI, you know, it's, it's, if, if something is good enough, you can't tell if it's a computer generated yeah. person, right? So the, basically the ideological Turing test is maybe I can, can I give a fair accounting of, you know, I'm not pro-communist, but can I, to a group of students in my role as a teacher, as a professional, mm. give a fair accounting of uh, Karl Marx's views so that an observer wouldn't know whether I support them or don't? Because, you know, a teacher is really supposed to be an honest broker in the classroom. An honest broker is like, if I'm buying, if I'm shopping for life insurance or if I'm shopping for car insurance, I know if I go to the nationwide guy that he's going to try and sell me nationwide and he's going to tell me it's the best deal. But if I go to an independent broker, he should say, you know, here are the pros and cons of these policies versus those policies. And I don't have a dog uh, in fight. I'm here to represent you. And that's how a teacher is supposed to operate. They're not, they're the referee. They're not a player trying to kick the ball, deflect it into their preferred goal. Um, so uh, that being said, if there is a subtext to my book, as I'm writing it, this is what was playing in the back of my head. I'm like angrily, you know, da, 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 and I'm thinking, this is not a free-for-all, people. This isn't a free-for-all. Because there are, you know, what you, you're you not making it up. If you're a teacher, this is going to sound really boring, and maybe this is why teachers deviate from it. But mm. you are hired to instruct on the curriculum that has been adopted by the school board in your district and that is in alliance with what the state uh, board of education indicates. So when I was an English teacher, it was like, okay, 10th grade English, you're going to cover these books. Now there is flexibility on how I'm going to cover these books, you know, because you do get to bring some creativity to it. But guess what? At the end of the year, there's going to be a common exam that all of the teachers write and if I'm sitting in my classroom talking mm. about the Communist Manifesto when I'm supposed to be teaching the Scarlet Letter, my kids are going to flunk and I'm going to look really bad. Yeah. So there, there are guardrails in place. The problem is that, you know, I just put together an article over the weekend that's, uh, you know, is that it's not being, su the supervision is failing and yeah. that they're looking the other way. These, these teachers, you don't wing it. You don't walk into the classroom and just wing it. You don't walk in there and be like, well, I'm really mad about what went down in Afghanistan. So I'm going to have a giant rant about what I think about Joe mm -hmm. Biden. That's mm -hmm. not teaching. Um, I, I do have a uh, presentation that I give to teachers sometimes. And it's, a, it's an article that I've published called Four Things You Can't Say in the K-12 Classroom. And I could run through those pretty quickly. They are, um, it's actually, it's a little bit deceptive, the title. It's basically four questions to ask yourself. And the first one is, is it age appropriate? We don't teach first graders about Nazi atrocities and concentration camps. <laughs> like, just don't do that. Yeah. But we, we have had teachers who were talking about just, just this past school year, masturbation, first graders learning about, see, see, why, why, what were you thinking? 
right. How would that happen? Right. You just and my know son's that- 12 and I'm his dad and I'm still like, I don't know when to have this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's like, you, you know, it's like, be professional, be mature. It's never, that should never happen. Um, is it, is it, okay. Is it age appropriate? Is it aligned with the curriculum? You know, it's like, I'm sorry, was masturbation in the curriculum today for, you know, that yeah. this wasn't, this was sex ed, I think, but you know, sex ed in first, first grade, grade typically, sex, usually that's like closer to puberty, isn't it? And six years old is a little ways away. Yeah, I think it was in a private school and they were very, I guess, progress. I don't know. Somebody, somebody was working out their own issues, I think, honestly. Um, yeah. So let me think. It's, is it age appropriate? Is it aligned with the curriculum? Is it even handed? So, mm. and then is it inflammatory? Those are the four questions to ask yourself. So I would say, for example, right now talking about Afghanistan probably would be pretty inflammatory. Uh, typically, the closer you are, like there's this old saying, hindsight is twenty twenty. Right. Well, if hindsight is 2020, what is present sight? It's probably a little bit blurry. Mm-hmm. And to walk into a classroom and think that you know the right opinion to hold on a situation as complex mm. as Afghanistan, you're probably walking into a minefield. You don't know if you've got military kids in that classroom. You don't know if you've got people, you don't have relatives still stuck there. So, generally speaking, current events are, are the things that are the most likely to lead to problems and, you know, and I, I do this for teachers. It's like, here's how not to get in trouble and how not to get fired. That mm-hmm. being said, you know, when you have a responsible teacher, when there's a lot of trust between the school and the community, you do get more operating discretion. But right now, I think a lot of trust has been broken. And so now we have more than mm-hmm. half the states have legislated or tried to enact in the process of, uh, you know, proposing legislation to restrict the teaching of so-called divisive concepts, which includes critical race theory, uh, but other things like the racial essentialism. Basically, you know, mm-hmm. if you are white, you have certain immutable traits that might include guilt. And if you are a person of color, other, you know, like which really does, again, sort of violate some basic religious norms and you don't send you know this idea that we're all created equal and and Mm -hmm. it's fine to have different opinions but you don't send your kid to school and expect that in a secular school they're going to unlearn like there is a lawsuit right now in nevada and the teacher literally taught the kids said to the class that we are here uh and you're going to need to unlearn some of those you know yeah i just i just found out about the story yesterday (laughs) yeah and uh, you know that is not what yeah i mean evangel evangelistic teachers probably in the 50s were going a little too far you know maybe making kids pray in the classroom i I had a teacher in massachusetts swear to me I, i haven't been able to verify this but she swears that it's still written in the massachusetts law that children will read a psalm every day at this at the beginning of school and it's just I get you know she implied I was like really and she said yeah they just I think no one has the nerve to take it out maybe again I haven't Mm -hmm. I haven't been able to verify it so you know it can happen uh, you know so if you are an atheist or if you are um you know not of the judeo-christian background you probably really would have resented that and that would Mm -hmm. have been and so they've had to learn that in a secular school, I don't get to do this. Well, I think some of these newer ideologies are going to have to learn that that same lesson that we don't evangelize in the classroom. These are not your children. These are other citizens' children. And if you don't want them doing that to you, you don't do that to their children. Yeah. So 
So one one thing I I I, I want to do, and that's what talking like I want to like you know push back and get a little bit more of a like see what your your solutions are to this. And I want to use my own experience, like just bring up the Afghanistan thing, for example, right? So so I think you know I'm a great example. I was a freshman or sophomore when 9-11 happened, right? What kicked off this whole thing. I remember it happening. Yeah. Uh, I don't remember much about talking about it in class and everything. So this is early 2000s. I graduated 2003, you know, and that happened 2001. So anyways, anyways, um, me, aside from my uh, drug addiction, with, but I, I, I have not cared about politics or anything until my 30s, right? Until my 30s, now I'm like, okay, what, what's going on? And, you know, I want to be a good, a good member of this last time. Yeah. I want to be a good member of this democracy. Right. Okay. So anyway, so I guess here's my question when we're talking about Afghanistan current events. Right. So I, and I might be totally wrong about this. And if I am, let me know, like thinking of juniors and seniors in high school, we're about to send them out into the world. Some of them are going to college. Some of them might just, you know, do their own thing, start their own business or go to a trade school, whatever. Right. But don't we want to teach them to be members of this, uh, you know, members of this democracy and get involved and figure out what they care about? Like earlier, we were talking about authenticity, but how how do we do that if we're not talking to them about what's going on in the world? You know what I mean? Like, like I don't want a bunch of kids turning out like me because, for example, in my household, like I don't, I still don't think my parents really talk about politics, right? Like I'm more into it than they are. So if you're not getting it at home, and then if we don't talk about current events in school, these kids are 17, 18 years old, about to send them out in the world. Like I, and, and there's always conversations about low voting rates and there's so many political nihilists who just don't care. You see what I mean? So I'm curious, like, What's the solution? I, mean, I, would, I would never assert that you shouldn't be talking about current events at all. The, the actual, you know, and this is based on case law, is inflammatory. Uh, you want to avo- avoid inflammatory mm. topic. Uh, and of course, that sort of is a time and a place. And it um, sometimes it can really surprise you what turns out to be inflammatory. But even some of the better worded laws that have been proposed will just say something like, if current issues, uh, current events are being discussed, competing views must be presented. Got uh, it. Okay. That's what I would say. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it has to be open-ended because it, if it is current, it is open-ended. And I, yeah. what I don't want, what I don't recommend is that teachers present these uh, pat uh, preconceived conclusions that really have not been, uh, you know, unanimously arrived at, they, which I think sometimes they do. They sort of oversimplify things or tilt things in the direction of their perspective. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, a reliable, professional teacher will take a step back and say, this isn't about me or my opinions. This is about kids and their intellectual development. And you have to leave room open for them to disagree with you yeah. uh, and for them to reach a conclusion that, that you dislike. Uh, but of course, if they're, if they're leaving out vital information, then you would, you know, Socratically challenge them and say, oh, but what about this? And yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That. Okay. But, I, you know, like the point is for them to be able to reach conclusions without you, because if you are, you know, there's this old Saturday Night Live skit that I remember from the seventies where it was called Pre-Chewed Charlie's. There used to be this old restaurant called Beefsteak Charlie's. And at Preachy Charlie's, uh, you would get a steak and they would chew each bite before you. So before <laughs> you got it and then you would eat it afterwards. And I feel like that's what kids are being given. It's like, mm. don't think, kids. Here's the right opinion to hold on this. We're not even going to ex- oppo- 
expose you to all of this information that just might confuse you because we don't trust you to reach the right conclusions. Mm. And, and that's where we're veering into indoctrination, not so education. Can I, let, let me tell you my theory, Bonnie, and I, I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on this. So I, I think, I, I don't even know if it's just, you know, the political landscape, but it feels like people, they find it that like whatever their beliefs are, it is just so tightly held with this Kung Fu grip, right? Like I, I've had so many authors on here, like people who debunk like conspiracy theories and all that stuff. And I think a great example is uh, Andy Norman came on. He's a professor of philosophy, has a book called Mental Immunity, right? It's trying to like uh, in, uh, immunize your brain from bad ideas. And mm. something he learned, I think it was the second, he has a little anecdote in, the, in his book, but it was like second year of teaching. Right. Like he came in his first year, he had all these like, oh, I'm going to teach him this. But a second year, he started saying like, oh, but what do you think about this? Right. Like the yeah. annoying teacher thing. But, you know, he's getting them to, you know, developing them to come to their own conclusions. But anyways, going back to my theory, when you look at all this stuff, when you look at, you know, the Capitol insurrection, right, when you look at people who stormed the Capitol, Ashley Babbitt, who got shot and killed there, there's people going to jail and, you know, uh, uh, or you just see like even people on the far left and all this. Basically, we have it feels like we have an issue with people believing in things way stronger than they should be, right? Because I try, like, I try to put myself in the shoes of a capital riot, right? You think that democracy is failing, the election has been rigged, uh, you know, things are about to go terribly. And when you fully believe that with a hundred percent of your being, of course you're going to storm the Capitol. You think that you think that America is about to fall apart, right? Um, people, you know, on these, uh, you know, these uh, COVID debates. If you believe, if you believe that there is there there are nefarious figures trying to harm us with a vaccine and harm our children, you're going to do some crazy things, right? So I guess what I'm getting at, like, so if I'm looking, if I'm coming from that place that people hold on to their beliefs too much, then you have a teacher, right? You have a teacher who firmly believes if, uh, you know, if, if this Republican in California gets uh, elected, right? Like California is going to come apart. I saw a guy literally saying uh, on TikTok that uh, there's going to be concentration camps if the Republican gets elected, right? Yeah. You, you see what I mean? And but but yeah, I and that's like, inflammatory rhetoric, which yeah. is like what we were just talking about. I think that um, what you're, I, I, it's interesting that you're using the word believe yeah. instead of the word think or conclude, uh, because when you're in the <laughs> realm of belief systems, you know, you really are kind of beyond the realm of thought and logical cogitation, and you are talking about belief systems, which really are not what schools are about. And I like to give the example, well, for one thing, adolescents have what you call a two-track mind. And we all mm. actually have this. And basically, it means you can go from rational thinking to irrational thinking pretty quickly, especially if something feels personal. Mm. So you can have good debates about topics. Like we, we have this debate kit that we've put together at, at uh, the fire.org slash K-12, incidentally. And you can access that for free. It's for teachers. And um mm. And we have, and we have, and we also have a debate, we have a healthy discussion discourse club that we've put together. Oh. And we have a lot of exercises in there that go from sort of, we call it low, 
like from one one chili pepper to five chili peppers. And you're talking about like five chili peppers, really spicy conversation. <laughs> yeah. And I would just say that that's not a good place to begin in the classroom unless you know that the kids are mature, unless, you know, there's going to be kids in the class who can't handle it. And then yeah. it goes from being an intellectual exercise to just a shouting match where nothing academic is happening at all. Yeah. And you have to build those skills. Um, and it really also is going, there's what's known as inductive reasoning and de deductive reasoning. Mm -hmm. Inductive reasoning is where you just sort of know in your gut that something is right. And this is where children can naturally do inductive reasoning. And an example of, and, and inductive reasoning often works. Your gut tells you that this guy is the wrong guy to vote for. Why? Because he just feels bad. And, you know, you just know he's the, he's the wrong person. Uh, whereas logically, you might reach a different conclusion. Uh, but inductive reasoning, for example, you might say, this is how I used to teach it. Uh, okay, well, my dad has curly hair and my mom has curly hair. So therefore, if somebody has curly hair, then they're probably related to me. That's an example of how inductive reasoning doesn't really work because deductively you would have to understand the laws of genetics and how, um, you know, recessive traits are passed on and so on. So certain things can't be reasoned out inductively. Mm -hmm. um, so the problem is when people are emotional, they will flip from, you know, deductive reasoning has to be taught in schools. You don't naturally learn to do that. And this mm -hmm. is where I think we're really failing. And mm -hmm. we're ha hearing a lot of emotional arguments and inductive reasoning being deployed. And then when people maybe try to bring some deduction to it, they get shouted down maybe by the teacher, because the teacher's upset, because inductively it feels wrong or it threatens their worldview. And this is not professional practice. This isn't what we want. And to tell you, give an example of how important this is, it's inscribed into ethical codes, for example, uh, for medical doctors. A medical doctor is not supposed to practice on members of their own family. Why? Because you're going to lose your marbles and you're going to make bad yeah. decisions and you're yeah. going to reach terrible conclusions. So if you are in the hospital, you're the surgeon in the ER and your son is brought in and he's had a terrible car accident, what's the first thing they do? They get another doctor because yeah. you're not going to be able to handle the case. So that's an example of how we can flip from inductive to deductive. And yeah. I would just say that if kids are flipping into inductive reasoning, that it is probably a topic that is beyond their capacity. Um, it might be a little bit too near and dear in terms of its inflammatory properties. And it, you know, and it's, it's when you're teaching, you know, maybe first and second period can handle it, but you know, you let your fifth period class, mm. just forget it. You're just going to have to simplify yeah. it because there are a bunch of hotheads. They're less mature. Um, so, th so that's how I would answer yeah. that question is you, yeah. you have to monitor and adjust to the kids in mm. your classroom. But if people are yelling and if other people are saying, you shut up now, you, you have no right to say that because, you know, you don't, that's not a debate. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I, I think it's, uh, yeah, it's interesting you bring up that ER scenario. My, my mom, my mom, not only is she a psychologist, but she's the clinical director at uh, a rehab. She's been doing that for 20 years. She got sober when I was 20, right? Well, anyways, yeah. when she helped me get sober and right. I needed help, 
she couldn't treat me. You know what I mean? Because there's obviously yeah. that that kind of uh, conflict. And, it would and yeah, be called transference. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. that would be that would be a mess, right? Because we, me and her had a lot of issues that we had to work out. You know, just you know through that. But that's a whole yeah, different. And, <laughs> it, well, and and you know they'll they'll say with counseling, like there are some people who just trigger you, and they remind yeah. you maybe they remind you of your father or something like that. And the ethical thing is, you're supposed to say, "I'm sorry, I can't work with you," because yeah. if parents. And it's similar with the topic. It's like some teachers, you know, maybe they can't talk about 9-11 because there's a reason. Yeah. And, and they have to say, I'm sorry, I, this is some, I can't do this. We're going to have a different topic instead of that one. It's just too yeah. exciting for me. So, and kids have to have the right to say that too. And it's unreasonable. Like we, the, a low level debate that we would encourage starting with would be something really simple, like Coke versus Pepsi. Like if yeah. anybody finds that threatening, I, I just don't believe them. Uh, you know, maybe if you're from Atlanta, you might be uh, yeah. uh, excessively pro-Coke. But you know what I'm saying? You yeah. to, and, and I can even imagine a debate about, you know, Red Sox versus versus Yankees getting out of hand. Yeah. Just You just kind of never know what's going to trigger. Um, but I, I tend to give this advice that if something is currently trending hotly on Twitter or in the op-ed pages of your local <laughs> paper... It's probably, it's just not probably going to be a good yeah, learning. Great, exercise. great rule of thumb. Yeah. 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 And, and it's like, you need a certain amount of distance. That hindsight is twenty twenty thing. Yeah. Um, may, I think at the college level. Yeah. And, and kids are going to bring this sort of stuff up anyway, but when it gets out of hand, that's when it's like, whoa, whoa, we're going to shift gears, change the subject because this yeah. is no longer academic. This is just, you know, it, 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 and we also have this thing called the, uh, disagreement pyramid you know and at the lowest level again you can access this at, at fire's website with the k-12 materials is lowest level it's name calling so you know mm. when it generates to that point and there's a lot of ways to call names you know there are a lot of labels that we apply to people but that is the lowest level and that is below the level of academic discourse you know a, a true counter argument is when you use logic and evidence to um present the opposing view Mm -hmm. And that's what we're aiming for in a school. And if people are throwing around ad hominems uh, or just mere contradiction, all of this is below the level of what we're paying teachers to do in the classroom. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I completely agree. And it's it's interesting, too. Something I'm, I'm all, I always think about, like, I talk to so many different people from so many different backgrounds and stuff. And, and uh, you know, uh, it's interesting how many people are like, this topic needs to be taught in schools, right? Well, everybody and, knows yeah. what teachers should be doing yeah. in school. There's no shortage of yeah. this. But we only, we only have so much time, yeah. right? Like I, I personally took, you know, a few months to read a bunch of books on uh, arguments and fallacies. And uh, one of my favorite genres of books is just, uh, you know, on decision-making and our own thinking errors yeah. and, and all that stuff. But you know, it, but like, that's, you know, it's like, where do you squeeze that in the school? Like, you know, like I'm a big psychology nerd and it's oh, I like, think, I think personally you squeeze that all over the school. It's, um, you know, <laughs> it used to be what I think one of the biggest problems that we're having now is, is the lack of logical argumentation yeah. being taught in the schools. And it used to be that to get a bachelor's degree in any liberal art, you, that was a requirement. It was like the ancient trivium, I think was logic, rhetoric, and composition, if you just Google trivium, it'll come up. Uh, and through the 1950s, you, you know, to be a graduate, you had to be conversant with the basic mm. argument. And in the 60s, we got rid of that. And boy, does it show today. Really? I didn't even know that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you can, it, today, 
the only places you really will probably find it would be in a philosophy department, you know, it's, if you're going mm-hmm. over, yep, or maybe in math, in geometry or, or yeah. something like that, where you have to prove a theorem. Uh, and I think that this is one of the greatest deficits in our schools. And we have people believing things that can easily be disproven. And we have people uh, in schools, teachers promoting ideas that are themselves fallacious. And uh, so I think that I would personally advocate, you know, one of the things I think we may have to move towards is, you know, adjusting the standards in states and including more logical reasoning and critical thinking yeah. skills. I, I, yeah, I think, I think that is probably the best answer. I think about this all the time and I, and I like it where you're like, we need to teach it all over the place. Like it makes sense. Like think about in, in a math class, right. Making sure you're not, you know, seeking, seeking out com- uh, confirmatory evidence, right. Uh, in an English class, when you're reading books and you're asking people like, Hey, what do you think this means in this section and intertwining it in there? Like, Hey, is it, is this possible? Like you could really bring logical critical thinking into every single class. Well, you know? speaking of which, I'm hearing some illogical arguments. Like they, uh, I have two. One, one is I'm hearing a lot of people comparing what's going on with the banning of, or the attempted bans in the legislature, uh, comparing it to evolution and the, like the scopes trial and, and all of that. And I have a couple of thoughts on that. And then the other one I'm hearing is that, well, this is just like what happened to Socrates because he was, you know, forced to drink the hemlock because he was poisoning the minds of youth. And I thought about it and I'm like, you know, that's exactly what did not happen to Socrates or that's exactly what Socrates was not doing. Socrates was asking questions. Yeah. Whereas what they are doing is presenting conclusions yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right. and um yeah so not socrates you're not socrates yeah here. i, I yeah. yeah that's that's something i've, I've just yeah that's something I, i'm like wait what like there's a, there's a lot i see it from both the left and the right you know like like one of the what's what's that like uh ar- like argument ad hitler or something like that where like you just <laughs> the first where you just jump and say like oh this is as bad as hitler this is bad as the whole time it's like oh god right like it's just hitler. like terrible analogies but again it goes back to that that strongly held belief if you believe that this is going to lead to like i said like there was a guy saying that uh the uh electing uh elder in california as uh you know governor would lead to concentration camps it's like okay well if you believe that then you don't even realize how irrational that is to compare it like like people often forget that we have these 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 checkpoints, right? <laughs> these checkpoints in legal systems where it's like, I think we might, that's that's why, you know, the slippery slope yeah, argument. The, the loss of nuance and the stretching of language, you know, I was an English major and I get really, really personally hung up on the meanings of words. And it really bothers me when people misuse them or when people stretch them to mean things that, that they don't actually mean. But you're describing the kinds of cognitive distortions that Greg Lukianoff yep. addressed in coddling. And, um, you know, I, and I, I think it's sort of like the Buddhist notion of right speech. It's like, I don't think you should say more than you mean. I th- you know, they almost consider it whatever the Buddhist version of sinful is. It's mm. just missing them. You know, you're just missing the mark. Um, if, and you'll never, I guess, achieve, achieve enlightenment. If you exact, like exaggeration is a fault. It's a flaw to be corrected. You want to say precisely what you mean. And I think that that is an academic skill that teachers should insist on. And I don't think that um, you get to win an argument just because you are screaming at me. 
or because you're exaggerating. And actually, we on our disagreement period at Pyramid, I'm thinking of adding just, um, you know, yelling and screaming on the side. Those are not academic arguments. Those are intimidation tactics. Yeah, I kind of frighten me. Yeah, I actually, I, I actually used to have terrible anger issues, right? And I've, I've taken a long time to like just work on myself. I, one of the, the books I wrote, like quick self plug, I wrote Rewire Your Anger, right? But right. that's something I struggled with forever. I was a very loud person, intimidation, right? And part of just, you know, my own self-reflection and growth was I look back, I'm like, huh, how many times has that worked? How many times have I ever changed a mind because of this tactic? And I was like, oh, okay. You know, and I, and, and it, it, you know, it's just like kind of trying to use like scientific reasoning, like, okay, well, this has never worked. Maybe I should try, <laughs> maybe I should try well, a different method. And there's, there's also, um, yeah, the, the old Dr. Phil line, how's that working out? How's that working for yep, you? Exactly. But yeah. I, I, I would say that most of the strident arguments that I hear are are just in the realm of, of vast exaggeration. And when people, you know, sort of insist they must have their way because they're in excruciating pain over something, I I have and it's not a it's it's not an easy thing to do, but I have in my life said, I think you are exaggerating. Yeah. And I think that that's what a teacher, you know, you know, a, a wise or experienced teacher is able to do. And I think we probably need a bit more of that in our culture. Uh, just, the, you know, these hyperbolic yeah. claims, I think, need to be disputed and um, and brought down to because I think that there are some claims worth listening to. But you, you, you underline your own credibility when you exaggerate. Um, yeah. And it's, you know, the boy who cried wolf. So a lot of these things sort of fall into uh, the realm of fables that we should have learned when we were younger and we need to relearn them. Yeah. I, uh, I, I am sure that my audience is probably tired of me referencing the coddling of the American mind. Cause I, I, I reference this one section so much, what you're talking about is the cognitive distortions, the catastrophizing, because that's, you know, that's when it really clicked, like going back to my experience being canceled, because it was a lot of exaggeration, right? Like this guy is going to kill people. And it's like, whoa, like let's dial back. But I think my favorite part, and this is what I always bring up, and maybe it's because, you know, I've gone through, I've gone through therapy, I've worked in a treatment center and all these other things, but they say, they talk about like, just a quick little thought experiment. Imagine someone going to their therapist, something minor happened, and they were like, oh my God, this is the worst thing to ever happen to me. I'm going to die. And then the therapist looking at him and saying, you're absolutely right. It is that terrible. Like <laughs> they would be the worst therapist on earth. And that's the way I think about it with this catastrophizing, like, and, but that's what we see. We see a lot of enabling. We see a lot of, yeah. you're right. You're right to feel that way. It's okay. It's like, at what point do we say, Hey, maybe my reaction isn't proportionate to the situation because that is something that does happen. It's not like we all have perfect emotional regulation skills. You know what I mean? And not, and we tell ourselves things that aren't true all the time. And that's why people go to therapy to reevaluate <laughs> the self-talk that they're doing that sometimes is factually inaccurate. And another word for cognitive distortions is logical fallacies. So really, mm-hmm. if you are trained it, it be, and that's the the method for getting out of them. It's like, can you like an example of a cognitive distortion? And I would have students come to me and say this: everybody hates me. And then I would say, well, <laughs> I don't hate you, so yeah. therefore, false. Your conclusion yeah. is false. Can you think of one other person who does not hate you? And it's like, well, and I was like, well, see those kids over there? They don't even know you, so they don't hate you. Yeah. <laughs> and you just have to break it down that way using yeah. using logical, uh, you know, skills. Yeah. And uh, and I think that that is a much healthier uh, mode of 
yeah, instead of saying, oh my gosh, we have to completely reconfigure uh, the entire school system based on the, you know, maybe exaggerated re overreactions and some highly sensitive folks. Mm -hmm. No, you know, I think that maybe we can chip away at both ends. There probably are things we can do to be more sensitive and uh, not, you know, the whole world cannot be turned into, you know, a, a fluffy mm -hmm. pillow for the hypersensitive folk who demand to never experience adversity. All right. So, so something I've been curious about since reading your book, Bonnie, and, and this kind of idea of catastrophizing. So I, so something I think about a lot is we only have so much time, so much cognitive space to worry about things. Right. So I try right. to pick and choose what I worry about. So, uh, so, so I'm always curious, how big of a problem is this indoctrination in school? So for example, like I'm a father, I have a 12 year old son. And the other day we were, we were driving to the movies and on the way there, I look at him, I'm like, Dylan, and uh, I haven't mentioned this, but uh, I, so I'm half black. So he's a quarter black, right? So we both look white, right? But anyways, I asked him, I'm like, Dylan, you're 12 years old. You just started seventh grade. Have you ever in any of your classes, any of your teachers, have any of your teachers just made you think or feel that you're a bad person because you're white, right? And he looks at me like I'm insane. And he's like, what? Right. And you know, I'm 30, I'm 36. I have other parent friends and stuff and this topic hasn't come up. So I see, I see a lot of people talking about it on Twitter and everything like that. And I'm always just curious, am I in a bubble? Are they in a bubble? So anyways, that leads to my next question. Like, like when we're talking about catastrophizing, like how big of a problem is this right like like you get these kind of letters from parents and stuff like yeah. that all the time speaking of so, being in, in a bubble i'm like marinated in this stuff whereas yeah. you're apparently you know immune to it for now um i can't quantify exactly how widespread this is the information i have is anecdotal i have experienced it myself mm. uh, i i would say that it um anecdotally and i hope someone academically will do the quantitative research to try to wrap their that, you know, wrap some numbers around the scope of how widespread it is. It's widespread enough that more than half of the state legislatures have proposed or enacted laws to combat it. So that gives us a pretty good indication mm. that they're hearing from their constituents. And that happened much faster than I ever would have expected. Last spring, it was really hitting the fan. Uh, but that being said, just to give my impressions of what's going on. I think that it is more widespread in um, coastal areas, you mm. know, the West Coast, I think in affluent areas or in poor urban areas. I think places where rich and poor collide, which often is in urban areas. Yeah. Uh, I think it's more prevalent in private schools uh, and in wealthy suburbs. And I also have gone places where people ask me what I do and I sort of allude to it and they're like, what, what are you even talking about? And I'm like, if you don't know, just be glad and yeah, I'm not going to explain it to you. Like, okay. Uh, so I, I think that you're least likely to find it apparently in Las Vegas and, uh, and other rural, and that's not a rural area, but I think in rural areas, you yeah. are less likely to find it. I think that it's, um, but I think that it varies from school to school. And also from classroom to classroom. So, yeah. you know, it kind of, I can't, all it really requires is a teacher to come straight out of the ed schools who's young and fired up with this zeal, this missionary messianic zeal. And suddenly you could have a problem in your school. For instance, the, the private school I pulled my daughter out of was fine. And then there were 
two administrators that came together and suddenly the whole culture was completely mm. different than what we had signed up for. And yeah. I hear that a lot. Um, it doesn't take it. These people who are really promoting this um, CRT is one name it goes by. I would I would call it sort of identity politics, CRT, sort of neo-Marxism. It's, it's sort of a melange of different things. Mm -hmm. uh, but it, it really just takes a small, very fervent group to insist up, upon the changing of the culture. So there are sort of things to watch out for, like, are they bringing in outside consultants? Is mm. your school, uh, in the book, I have five signs your child might be being indoctrinated or is being indoctrinated. And like schools were putting out these, we believe statements, which is kind of like, uh. you're telling me what I believe. I, I can decide for myself what I believe. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, and like ac activism weeks where we're going to go out and we're going to march for these causes or we're going to, um, you know, there, there were sort of Black Lives Matter action weeks that were happening that, um, you know, is sort of getting into political activism in a, of a kind that n you wouldn't normally expect to find in a school. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so, so let me, let me tell you this Bonnie. So this, like you're, you're one of my new favorite people now, because like what happens when I read books, like, cause I know, like, like we mentioned stuff gets cut out of books and you don't really get to know the author. Like, you know, authors often put like a little like, Hey, who's, who am I? But I'm always trying to like, you know, think of, you know, worst case scenario. I try to be skeptical. Right. And I'm like, yep. so when I read these kind of things, I'm like, well, how do I know? How do I know someone like Bonnie isn't just having a moral panic? Like, you know, <laughs> but, you know, it seems, you know, and and another question I had is, and are, are we recognizing if it's concentrated in certain areas? And these are all things that you've thought of. Right. So, like, I'm like, OK, cool. And that's why I love doing these podcasts, because I, I get to know and like uh, because, you know, some people you you talk to them and they do, they are turning it into a moral panic. So if I'm understanding you correctly, is, is kind of, is one of the goals of the book, is it to just, is it more to bring awareness? Is it to bring tools? Like, Hey, if it is happening in your area, but, uh, like, because I guess my other question is like, I don't ever want to fall into like the slippery slope, like, Hey, it's starting out in these areas, but it could right, be right. coming to it. You know what I mean? So, <laughs> so I guess what's, what's the goal of the, of the book? Is it awareness? Is it action? Is it both? Is it, what are, what are your I, hopes? I actually can't believe that this book wasn't written already. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, it, it's to do both. It's to do both. It is to, I think that the situation honestly has festered at a low, at a level of low grade chronicness for decades. And I think that Many, many parents have been aware that there are teachers with biases and they've had to sort of talk their kids through it and provide, you know, some balance at home. And uh, and I think that it's it just like has incrementally reached a point where it suddenly seems acute. And now we have, you know, school boards blowing. Like, if you want to know where it's happening, just look where the school boards are exploding uh, and that are making the national news. And that, that'll give you a sense of, of the scope of it. Um, but what I really, I think, am trying to do is empower parents and, and educators with, you know, the research that explains why this is not a good idea, why we traditionally have not done this, why, you know, that one of the things that I think drives it is like, but this time it's different. Yeah. And my response to that is, no, it's never different. It's always a bad idea to indoctrinate kids. Uh, mm. You know, I think there is a Supreme Court case that says, you know, if as long as there, as long as there is time to remedy uh, the problem, the answer is always more speech, not enforced silence. And there, yeah. there is time. This is not a, a national emergency. And it's that sort of exaggerated 
you know, catastrophe, catastrophizing that we're hearing to justify throwing out the window just, you know, centuries of, uh, you know, understanding and wisdom of how to properly educate Mm -hmm. you and, you know, to trust in the innate goodness of people and their ability to reach sound conclusions when they are given accurate information. And uh, there's a lot of distrust going around on both sides, you know, (laughs) parents not trusting teachers, teachers not trusting parents and teachers not trusting kids uh Mm -hmm. to reach sound conclusions but their minds are sound as sound as yours were and they can you know if you were able to i i I honestly do feel sorry i think some of these teachers as i said were not properly educated themselves yeah and um and and i think that grave disservice was done to them and i i know that they think they're doing a good thing and i think many of them you know, through professional development and through uh, getting some really strong feedback from some upset parents can learn to do better. Uh, but there are, a, a, you know, a segment of radical true believers who I think are incorrigible and are going to have to be removed. Yeah, it, it's funny. It's, it's funny, too. Like I, I was thinking because you were talking about, you know, like parents and teachers this morning when I was on my morning walk, I, I, I do a lot of thinking and like I take a lot of notes. But anyways, I was thinking of like, you know, just uh a book or a series of article ideas of just, you know, teaching kids how to think because it's, it gets, it's so complicated. And that's what I, I, why I like having conversations because you got to worry about the teachers and you got to worry about the parents and, you know, but also oh, yeah. like, again, like uh, one of my main things is how do we teach kids how to think? So I was thinking about like, you know, uh, maybe that's your next book. Like how do we teach kids how to think? Because the kids are there with the teachers and when do they know? When do they know when it's something like, Hey, something seems off here but you know you mentioned like this stuff kind of really started bubbling up last uh spring and this is in your book it's in a lot of articles when i was researching this topic uh with kids doing remote schooling from home and and parents working from home you had parents just like record scratch like like wait what did they you know like what did the teacher just say so right. so we're recognizing it more and all that but uh yeah we well, and I, i'm just going to interject too and don't always believe uh, what your child says because kids are prone to exaggerating too so get yeah. your facts straight that is actually the first tip we have this funnel of what to do when you think it's happening at your school get your facts straight because yeah. kids come on they they yeah, like, get pretty worked up yeah speaking <laughs> of uh you know going back to logic like yeah is it lot irrational to think that a kid has never lied or exaggerated something. The kids never get mad at their teachers and try to make the teacher look bad. That's never happened. Of course. So, so yeah, I mean, always, I think you want to uh, presume goodwill on the part of the other Mm. party, still proven otherwise, and then let them have it. Yeah. (laughs) So, so let me ask you this, because you brought up like, you know, school boards and like seeing what's going on at school boards. So one of your, one of your uh, solutions, like one thing I love about the book, I, I love any book where it has like actionable solutions and you killed it in the last part. You're like, how it affects them. And here's what, you know, people could do and all that. But, but anyways, you mentioned school boards. And I think just because of what we've seen on the news lately, I almost laughed out loud, right? Because I have, there are just videos and articles of just parents losing their excuse my language shit at these board meetings yeah. so i'm just like so so what what is the solution for for <laughs> this because because you say like one of one of the main things we could do as parents is attend these school board meetings but it is complete madness it's insanity so how yeah. how do we how do we get and, involved and school board members are resigning over yeah. it um yeah, I, well, I think that again, I think that we're having an over a bit of an overcorrection, perhaps in the school <laughs> <laughs> Um, But I, yeah, I mean, this is our it's, it, 
when I first started at FIRE, the big argument was that we're not teaching enough civics in schools and that, mm. uh, you know, kids don't learn about the First Amendment and they don't learn about their rights and everything. And this is civic engagement. And so I, I you know, I think that schools, ironically, are suddenly providing a really good object lesson in civics and civic engagement. Uh, and so think, remember that you're teaching your kids when you go to these school board meetings. So let's be good role models of how to logically express a point of view and, you know, uh, oration and how to persuade other people instead of trying to coerce them by screaming in their face or intimidating them. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, bad behavior on one side doesn't excuse or recommend bad behavior on the other side. Yeah. Uh, but that being said, I do think it's a very, a, a very positive thing that people are now engaged with the school boards. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's, it's a democracy. I mean, I, I make the point in the book that schools are many ways like police departments in that they are funded with tax dollars and the people who work there are public servants and they're expected to deal with all the members of the community in a fair and equal and, uh, transparent fashion. And if they don't do so, if you lose the goodwill of the community, there are going to be consequences. And I think they're seeing some of those right now. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I yeah. I like just, I, I was just thinking, I, I watched a clip the other day, like, uh, yeah. And you mentioned like people of the school board are like resigning. Like there was a guy like, and this happened multiple times, like literally threatening these people, right? Like, yeah. like physically harming over over the mask mandates and stuff like that right and i'm just like i'm like you guys like how how are we gonna accomplish anything but but again my brain goes back there have to, been arrests at school yeah, board meetings it, you know people it, yeah so it's it these would, beliefs it's these beliefs right like these these parents who literally think that like masks are harming their children or that it's political or that you know whatever and i'm just like god like we need to fix adults we need to fix teachers and i get i get a little pessimistic and i'm i'm trying to see the hope but like you said like you said glass is half full at least people are attending now so yeah i i that being said i cannot imagine teaching first graders and trying to get them to keep their masks on. I can't even imagine. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah. I, my, my son's 12. It's hard. It's hard to do it. He's a, he's a pretty like, like chill kid too, you know, but, um, and, and the prince, I just imagine the principal's office all day long is like 25 kids lined up. Can't keep this mask mask. What, what are you in for? My mask was, what are you in yeah. for? I Put think that's on. part of I think that's part of it, too. Like, you know, since COVID started, like, we're all in this together. Like, people screaming at teachers. Like, you think a teacher, you think a teacher with all the other crap they got to deal with in elementary school, that they want to, like, keep telling kids to put their masks on? It's hard enough Your to get them up. to not talk. <laughs> we're all in this together. Like, let's just, like, try to empathize with one another. That's, that's well, the way I see it. I, I do think, too, that um, at this point, you know, when I was finishing the book, it's a, it was a little earlier than now because it takes while, a while to print the book. And I do think that there are a number of teachers who are duly chastened and that mm. there is some um, evening out of the most egregious, uh, you know, impulses of some of the worst actors. So I, mm -hmm. I take some comfort in that. And I and I think there's residual anger on the part of some of these parents. But um yeah, but the, the, yeah, there was just a really interesting one. And the comedian, I don't know if you saw Rob Schneider wrote, mm -hmm. uh, he tweeted that it was in California. It was the Antifa teacher with the Antifa flag. Uh. And caught on video and he's and he tweeted, never in my life did I think I would sit through an entire school board meeting 
uh, online, but this one was absolutely riveting. <laughs> I, I started Googling the, the local ones here in Vegas. I'm like, I like, like, especially because uh, that's know, a really good thing because yeah. now you have a parent who's like, you probably didn't even know how often they're held or where oh. they are. Exactly. And now, well, you- uh, like, since I uh, since I have more time on my hand and I'm just self employed now, like, I, I want to go and I want to see, like, you know, kind of like I was saying, like, how bad is this, right? Because right, uh, right. there, uh, I saw a fellow parent talking about some of the insanity that happened at a recent one. I'm like, okay, so stuff is happening. And again, I want, you know, we don't know everything. I want to make sure I'm I'm not in in this kind of bubble. But, um, but Bonnie, I I I have a few more questions for you. I, I want to show you something oh. too, back to a previous question. So give me one sec. So you had asked about, um, Chris, how we can encourage critical thinking there and logical go. reasoning and things in schools. And we've recently at FIRE in the high school outreach department, we've been going to, we go to a lot of conferences. We go to social studies conferences, mm-hmm. sometimes English conferences. I go to counseling conferences because uh, a lot of the spe- free speech issues do get into the realm of emotions and, you know, um, social emotional learning but uh we recently have started going to the homeschooling conferences because homeschooling numbers are way way up and we think that there's Aww. a market there and um i am so impressed with some of the materials that i have found there and i just want to say not that you have need to homeschool your s- children to access them but we've purchased some of them so here are some uh homeschooling curricula are often very logic based even if it comes from like a catholic perspective or uh for, for whatever reason, I guess apologetics and there's a long tradition in uh, these homeschooling groups of teaching logic. So there are these cards where they're sort of talking about different logical fallacies. And uh. then, uh, I, I'm just pointing out that there is some great content that you can access through homeschooling networks that you could use to supplement at home and teach mm. about critical thinking. And we have pulled together at FIRE uh, what we call discourse clubs. And we include some of this content all free to teachers who might be advisors to students in the schools. So we want to supply you with everything. We've got like five levels of learning. The first one is small talk. You know, how do you like, I, you know, before we got on the air, uh, we engaged in some small talk and yeah. that's something that doesn't come naturally to kids and they get even less practice than older generations did because they're at home playing video games more than we did. And uh, the second level is the First Amendment, understanding the First Amendment. The third level is logical reasoning. Mm. Uh, And the fourth level, we have material on handling disagreements, which is what's going on in these school board meetings. So obviously adults could use some improvement in how to handle disagreements effectively. And it's all Mm. based in uh, the training I've had in effectiveness training, which is a communication model. And then the Mm -hmm. fifth level is wisdom to guide you because, you know, there's always this question, do I speak up or do I hold, you know, do I hold my tongue? And even at FIRE, we're a free speech organization, but, you know, we self-censor sometimes because if everybody blurted out everything they're thinking all the time, they'd, you know, they'd take us away. That's just (laughs) not how human beings operate. So uh, we worked really hard to put together some good content to equip kids to, um, you know, develop logical reasoning and uh, argumentation skills and just basic conversational skills so that they can get along pleasantly. And the tagline we put together is keep your views and keep your friends. Yeah, I I like it. And and, uh, I I don't even know if it's a personal unpopular opinion, but honestly, like just when I think about everything and I'm I'm a huge believer that like I, I blame everything mostly on the parents. 
right? Like I'm like parents and the babies and teach and and as an educator and like my grandma, she she was an educator for like 40 years, something like that. My mom, she was a teacher for a while. But anyways, like there's, and I have a lot of friends who are teachers. There's a lot of uh, parents expect teachers to be the daycare, to be the teacher of like morality, the people to teach of like logic and stuff. And like, I, I truly feel that a lot of us parents have to get involved a little bit more, like with what you're talking about, right? Like parent, like, and you know, going back to the school board meetings, we have to acknowledge when we're, when we're indoctrinating our kids and not yeah. teaching them to be a little bit more flexible and have honest discussions because we are one of their primary role models. And if we're neglecting them or if we're ignoring them, if we just send them off on the school bus and say, Hey teacher, take care of literally everything. Yeah. It's hard to, it's hard to find it fair or that we have the right to complain about all these things and all these issues. If we're not taking an active role in our kids' lives. And that's my quick little rant about parents. And, and boy, didn't parents have to take an active role last year. <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> that was, yeah. That was a big uh, uh, wake-up call for everybody. And suddenly, mm -hmm. maybe you think there would be some more sympathy for what teachers go through after that. And, mm. and I think there is. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's, it's like when my daughter was assigned a communist manifesto. I didn't go in there and freak out and be like, how dare you? I don't want my kid ever to know that there was a book that was known as the communist manifesto. You know, you, you can't shield your kids from everything, but um, it's it's a matter of letting them hear different sides and you're going to impart values at home. And then, yeah, they are going to hear yeah. other things when they go out he, in the world. He, here's a here's a fun, quick story of just like how I personally just teach my son and have him, you know, look around. Well, anyways, uh, we're talking about we're considering braces. Right. And Dennis recommended Invisalign. Right. He has the option for like metal braces, which, by the way, Bonnie, I think it's weird because that kid's teeth are great. But anyways, aside from that. But what I had him do, here's what I had him do. Here's here's my parenting practice. I think you'll be proud of me, Bonnie. I said, go online, go on YouTube. He watches YouTube. I was like, look at people's different experiences. See what people say. What are the pros and cons that people, what are their experiences with this? What are their experiences with the other type? Then make a decision, right? I'm trying to I'm trying to teach him that in just every little way, no matter what it is. Like, does he want a PlayStation or Xbox? Well, go do some research. See the arguments for the arguments again. And I'm hoping that that expands because earlier you were talking about age appropriateness, right? I'm not going to go teach a first grader about the Holocaust and the, the full atrocities. But if I can kind of gradually get him into that thinking kind of mindset. Weighing pros and cons. Absolutely. It, yeah, yeah. It'll hopefully transfer. That's. That's, that's well, and it's sort of the low, it. it's sort of a low chili pepper thing too. It's like, well, it's not as you know, maybe he might if you're if you're looking at cars and he has his heart set on one, and you're like, go out there and weigh the pros and cons. He might yeah. become illogical and come back with information that all points to his preferred outcome. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but, so. um, yeah, there are all sorts of you know real life um, experiences that we can bring into the classroom. What you're describing is what used to be called consumer math, which mm. is what they used to you know put the lower track kids in when I was in school, and the higher track kids were given this abstract math that never meant anything to me, and that I haven't used a day in my adult life. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's it, it, yeah, it's interesting, and that's that's where some of us parents we got to take a, a an active role in there and you know try to pick up where there's certain gaps and stuff like that in school like you know me being a mental health guy i don't expect teachers to teach my son all about mental health but i do that at home but um one one I, thing i also think that um i think one of the things parents are objecting to is harping on one issue too much and too long too uh, you know this sort of just Everything goes back to race and power and oppression. And, you know, it's just when you have a hammer, everything's a nail. And 
I, I think that there is just a loss of proportionality and perspective and, mm -hmm. you know, we're, we're fixating on something excessively to the detriment of, of other subjects that are equally, you know, compelling and also need to be covered. So. Yeah. I, yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I'm curious your thoughts about teachers and I'm sure this can be uh, a whole nother episode, but I'm wondering your thoughts on this, right? Because I, as I mentioned, I come from a family of teachers. I know a lot of teachers. And if I look at somebody and like, cause uh, I don't know if people got the memo, but teachers don't get paid that much, right? So, so why do, so I, I go to the root. I'm like, why does somebody want to become a teacher? A lot of, a lot of teachers, their, their reason is they want to impact children. They want to help change their lives and foster, you know, uh, their skills and lead them on that right pathway. Right. But a lot of indoctrinate is about, you know, and these strategies and I get the ethical things, but anyways, here's what I'm getting at. Let me just lay out a fictional scenario, which I'm sure is very realistic. Because in the book, you talk a little bit about them, like encouraging kids to like get involved with like protest and stuff like that. And it's like, okay, now we're getting a little tricky, but let's say, let's say this, this, this little girl named Beth, she's a junior or senior, right? And she's seeing, she's looking, she's watching or whatever. And she, she does realize she cares. She cares about this issue. Well, there are so many kids that come from broken homes, terrible homes. And, and like we were talking about, parents are not involved, right? And some of the most inspiring people in a child's life are teachers. So I'm wondering, like, because I would feel that a good teacher, if the parent, if the, if the household sucks and they don't have anybody else in their life and the kids comes to them and says, I care about this issue. And, and maybe it's not even like about race. Maybe it's like, I want to go save the dolphins or something like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. So where do teachers, you know, that's one of my last questions is where do teachers find that balance? Because so many of them get into the field to motivate and inspire children, but we're also hoping on an ethical level that they try to just stay back and no, like, how do you inspire while also right. being Right, I think you're describing that you, you always want to play off children's natural areas of interest. And I think that a good teacher is going to be able to adapt the programming to kind of meet the needs of each kid who comes in, meet them where they are mm. and as far as you can in the year. And so when kids have existing interests, I think that there's all sorts of opportunities to tailor assignments so that they can develop the skills that you're required to impart, like research skills and writing skills. But uh. it's a boost. I, I don't understand. One thing I don't understand is why kids aren't doing book reports like we used to, because, you know, there's a lot of arguments about which books kids should read. And they should never be reading Huckleberry Finn and they should only be reading, you know, these other books that are very, <laughs> you know, so-called woke. And I, I just don't know why we can't say, look, here's a list of books. And some of them are about, you know, his, you know, Mexican children and others are about black children and others are just about mixed groups of children and pick the one that resonates with you and then do a report on it so that people mm -hmm. can't say all we ever read was white books by white males and things like that. I think that, um, you know, I, I think that probably we need to be offering more choice to kids, a wider range of choice. And I think that we have the technology that should make it easier to enable that to happen. Like maybe if you only have two kids in your class who are reading the same book. You could have a group that meets virtually across classrooms who want to talk about, ah. you know, this one book. So I, I think that a child who has a specific area of interest, um, of course, should be encouraged to do research papers on it and and so on. I, I love your, you know, when you talk about your family, how many of them have been teachers, too. It's like, can't you always tell when somebody 
has been a lifelong teacher because they talk a certain way. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, like, yeah for you're sure. I'm used to dealing with large groups of people that you have this way of expressing yourself that becomes part of your personality over time. And yeah, it's definitely one of those things where I'm like, is this like a genetic thing? Because, for example, when I worked in treatment, uh, one of my favorite things was doing groups and I would educate people about addiction and mental health. And, and, and I love it. That's why I started my YouTube channel. It led to me getting canceled. But I, I enjoy teaching and my, you know, I have fam- my family, they enjoy teaching. And well, I enjoy teaching fun. too. It's it's kind of terrifying sometimes, but um, <laughs> and I, had most, I had mostly excellent te- teaching experiences with my teachers other than in graduate school. Um which is why, you know, towards the end of my book, I warn teachers and, you know, it's, I, I, it's, yeah, I'm criticizing teachers as I go through the book. But towards the end, I'm like, look, I'm talking to you now and I'm warning you, if you don't get this together, they're going to come for you and you're going to start losing your professional discretion. So please, please stop doing this because yeah. and it's already happened. The legislatures have already acted faster than I ever thought they would. Mm. Uh, so, you know, now, like I said, some trust has been lost, some credibility has been squandered and it now their operating scope of discretion has been restricted and yeah. you're going to have to provide even more accountability. There's going to be, I mean, there are people now talking about, we're going to have to have cameras in the schools the same way. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, we have mixed feelings about that at fire, but I am not at all surprised that people are calling for that given yeah. what has transpired. Yeah. And uh, you know, and, and just wrapping this up, that's why I think your book is, is so important, right? Because, you know, especially now that we talked about, you know, it's not this like moral panic, but like, Hey, like you can find real world scenarios and there's things that we can all do from parents to teachers to, you know, uh, legislatures and getting involved in just your book has so many solutions. And you know, what's funny, Bonnie, we have been, there's one of my longer episodes, usually they're around an hour and we, we barely touched on a lot of what's in the book. And I think we were able to get into some books and created. So before I let you go, I have a list of like undoctrinate.org, right? I have fires website with the K-12 stuff, right? Yep. But I want, like, I'm sure a ton of my people in my audience are going to be like this Bonnie. She knows her stuff. Where can people find you? Because I don't think you're on Twitter. So where can people keep up with you? And, or like, if you're doing a presentation in their city or, or if they want to bring you out to their school district, like how do people yeah, find lo- you? I would love to do professional development. That is an area we are definitely moving towards at fire. I am on Twitter at Bonnie Kerrigan. It's at Bonnie Kerrigan. Uh, I do not tweet a lot, but probably I need to start tweeting more. I, I, I'm a little, you know, I, I've seen enough Twitter horror stories that I, I tread lightly. I'll protect you. Me and Greg will protect you, Bonnie. Don't worry. Uh, good, good. Um, but if you wanted to reach out to me, you can reach me at high school outreach at the fire.org. That's my email. Got it. Okay, perfect. Yeah, very cool. And and yeah, we're we're recording this before the book launch, but what, when is your book widely available for everybody to pick it up? What's the exact launch date of uh, September 14th. So um, two weeks, I know it's one week from tomorrow, I think. If yeah. I, if I have it right yet, yeah, it's September 14th, it'll be available. Beautiful. Yeah. By the time we launch it, it'll be available for everybody. So it'll all, I'm going to link all this stuff. There's going to be a lot of stuff down in the show notes for, cause you provided so many resources and here's the last thing I'll say, I'm just going to, I'm just going to make your day and send you off with some good feelings. What I love about this conversation, I could tell how passionate you are just about like helping and educating and, you know, like, Hey, we have all these resources. Like we have stuff, you know what I mean? And hey, I, we, we, I, we don't have to reinvent every wheel. There's a lot of existing stuff. That's quite good. Yeah, absolutely. So, so thank you so much for coming on and i i hope this book gets as much attention as it deserves and maybe we'll do this again sometime i would love to thanks so much for having me this was great
All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Bonnie about her new book. And like I said, it, it is such a good book. And as I mentioned towards the end of this uh, this episode, like we barely even touched on a lot of the topics that she dives into. Not only does she talk about a lot of stories that have been happening all over the country, but the the entire like you know second half or even final third of the book. It's all about solutions for teachers, for parents and all sorts of stuff. So I highly, highly, highly recommend the book. So check out down in the description below, make sure you're following Bonnie over on Twitter. There is a link to the book, which is out now uh, at the time of releasing this episode, it came out yesterday and there's already, you know, some great feedback about the book. So make sure that you check it out. All right. But yeah, down in the description below, make sure you're following me over on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. I also, you know, keep you up to date with the books I'm reading, uh, guests who are coming on. I have a lot of really cool guests coming on, so make sure you're following me. And I've been uploading more of these episodes over to The Rewired Soul YouTube channel. A lot of these are recorded with video, so if you want, subscribe over on the YouTube channel. All right, but yeah, before I let you go, there are a few great ways that you can support the podcast that don't cost you a penny. First one, Make sure you're following the podcast, whether you're on Apple, Spotify, whatever platform, make sure you're following or subscribe. Next, next great way to help. If you enjoyed this conversation, if you're like, hey, hey, this is this is something that more people should know about. Share this episode on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, Instagram, wherever. Share it out there. All right. And finally, if you have a few seconds, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and a review for the podcast. All right. All these things really help get the podcast out there to new people. The algorithms love it. So I would greatly appreciate it. All right. And there are a few other ways that you can help support the podcast. Uh, down in the description below, you'll find a link to the rewiredsoul.com where you can get my books that I have self-published, a lot of them on mental health as well as addiction recovery. But if you want to learn more about my experience being canceled on YouTube, I actually wrote a book about that. Uh, so if you want to check that out, that's at the rewiredsoul.com. You could also become a patron, get access to some exclusive content and all that. And lastly, uh, something that helped me out a ton when I went through the whole cancellation process was BetterHelp Online Therapy. So there was also a, uh, an affiliate link for BetterHelp Online Therapy down in the description. It's affordable. It's online. You work with a licensed therapist. So if you're somebody who is looking for therapy and you don't want to spend a ton of money, check out that link. It, it really helped me through a difficult time. So I'm a big, big advocate for BetterHelp. So check out that affiliate link. All right. So another huge thanks to Bonnie for coming on to the podcast to talk about her brand new book. Make sure you grab a copy. It is called Undoctrinate. All right. But anyways, uh, yeah, I hope you all have an amazing rest of your day. We have a couple more episodes coming out this week. So stay tuned and I will see you next time.